0: Hello and welcome to Myth Makers. Myth Makers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm the director of the Centre, uh, a keen Tolkien fan and also an author in my own right. And today I thought I would dedicate this episode to what I've gleaned as a storyteller about the upcoming Amazon series rings of power now there is plenty of information out there the publicity teams are in full throttle um, so you can find out lots of information about the uh, the actors who are playing the parts and um, news from the cast and that kind of thing so i thought our added value was to look at it as storytellers and what we might um, expect and the decisions that might have been taken in order to write this particular series Because I think it's an absolutely fascinating challenge that they're facing. Most of their material is drawn from the appendices in uh, Return of the King. And in fact, the information in that is very slight. So they've had a very blank canvas um, to work on. But the absolute key thing they've done, and I can understand why they've done it, is they've truncated... The time periods. So, if you just look at the list of the people uh, involved, the characters involved, and you look at the uh, the name of the piece, you can see what they've done. So, in the Second Age, there are two main events, both of which involve Sauron. The first, which happens earlier on, is the establishment of an Elven kingdom uh, just outside Casadum or Moria. Uh, where Celebrimbor, who is one of the leading craftsmen of the era, he's in charge of that sort of area, and he is uh, creating rings of power. And into this place comes Sauron, who uh, appears quite a sort of attractive figure, and because he is also a great craftsman, he shows the elves how to make these rings, and that's where the rock gets in, because uh, he twists it for evil. And it's also the time where he um, he he forges the One Ring that dominates the story of The Lord of the Rings. So there's that so that whole sort of nexus of characters. It includes Galadriel, it includes Elrond, it includes Gilgalad. More about all these in a bit later. Um. But that all happens in terms of the time of the second age. That all happens in about 1600. So if you just want to lodge it in your head as like the equivalent of Tudor days for us. Now, the second area of major activity in that age is about the fall of Numenor up to that point um Numenor was set apart as an island for the sort of the good guys, the good humans, the good men. And it was set between Middle-earth and the Undying Lands as a sort of special dispensation. It's a kind of Atlantis, and that gives you a hint of what happens there. And there's a whole series of very interesting kings in that uh, place. If you want to read more about them, there's a lot in the Unfinished Tales, which are really well worth reading including a fascinating husband and wife um, story, which is quite unusual in Tolkien. Anyway, um, it seems as though where they've settled as the scriptwriters is at the end of that. Um, And here we have a story about Muriel, who's one of the name characters. She is the last queen of that place. She was the legitimate queen, but was forced into marriage with... Ar-Pharazon. And it's his interaction with Sauron that really causes, and here's a plot spoiler, the downfall of Numenor. So she's quite a tragic figure, if they're playing it straight, um, because she's in this forced marriage and, you know, disaster strikes. And Numenor is punished for the arrogance of Ar-Pharazon, because Sauron, again, comes in and persuades him that He needn't obey uh, the gods' commands. It's a bit like a Garden of Eden story, very much like a Garden of Eden story, that he can sail to the Undying Lands, and that forbidden fruit is what Farazan sinks his teeth into, and in punishment, Númenor is sunk. And the remnant escapes, and they are the founders of the kingdom of Gondor, the Uh, Ancestors of uh, Aragon and so on. But the important thing about this is all of this happens in the year 3255. So if I've said the events of the Forging of the One Ring is back in Tudor times, you know that 3255 hasn't come. That's probably only appeared in something like Star Trek. It's thousands of years in the future. So in order to bring those two stories together, they've crushed the timelines. So the second age is really sort of squashed together. Uh, or I assume they're doing that rather than some time slip thing. Um, would, that would be very hard to tell. So let's, I think they must have sort of moved one set of things from there and one sets from the future, as it were, and they brought them in alignment. Now, what happens as a storyteller when you do that? Well, I think it's really interesting to look at it in parallel tracks like that, because what you see is the same pattern. So Sauron starts the Second Age defeated because his great sort of lord, uh, the original bad guy, Morgoth, has been defeated and chained. And so he's like a remnant of that power. So he's in a on the back foot. He comes to the elves with promising he's going to be a good boy, he's going to show them how to do all these wonderful crafts. And the overlord king, who is Gil-galad, doesn't believe him. So he's the skeptic. But because he's such a good artificer, the elven smiths of aregion are persuaded to listen and to invite him in and steal his craft or share their craft secrets and so you've got a seduction going on, and that word is actually used in the appendices to describe that relationship. It's a seduction. Let's hope they don't take that too literal in the Amazon series. Um, it, it's meant by Tolkien in a sort of intellectual seduction way. And so Sauron appears as the tempter then because he's holding out knowledge. Here we go back to the Garden of Eden again. It's the fruits of the tree of knowledge. And so. What then happens is, basically, the gig is up after a while because Celebrimbor, who's the main um, smith in that region, he works out, or he sees the plot. The rings have give you access, as you remember from Lord of the Rings. Rings give you access to the mind of Sauron. So he sees what's going on, and they realise they have to defeat Sauron. They're They're and there is a battle there um, for supremacy, and that's when aregion is basically wiped out. Um, Elrond flees with the remnant to set up um, Rivendell, and I'm afraid the future for Celebrimbor isn't that bright. So that's sort of one set of battles. So you've got the pattern there is Sauron as tempter, first of all, um, despite the warnings, is embraced... And welcomed people see what he's up to leads to a clash leads to a battle that same pattern is repeated in Numenor so he's first of all um brought there because Arpharazon thinks he's he he sails to Middle-earth and to, to Umbar in fact which we've not yet seen um and Sauron sort of you know, prostrates himself and sort of claims to be overwhelmed by his, you know, the marvels of his fleet and everything. But he's playing a longer game here. So he's welcomed to Numenor, where he then spreads his poison. There are people saying, look out, warning. He's not all he's cracked up to be. So there are people doing the gil role of warning against him. But that isn't obviously going down well with al He He wants to believe his top king, uh, his pride is his downfall. And so um, his, uh, his plots aren't unmasked until too late. So the seduction has gone on. And again, that word is used in the appendices. He seduces the people. And that is what leads to the attempt to overthrow, um, go as far as the undying lands, you know, try and be gods themselves, which then means Numenor is destroyed. So another kingdom is destroyed. Same pattern. You invite in the your own destruction. You um, don't listen to the warnings. You're seduced by what he seems to offer. You take a fatal step of um, creating rings or sailing to the undying lands and then you lose a kingdom. A kingdom is destroyed as a result. So I think what they're doing is running those two stories in sync or in some way meshing them. be very interesting to see where they find the connective tissue, if it's going to be a sort of this happens first and then that um, for a second series, or if they're actually going to run it parallel, though that has the problem about where is Sauron going to be um, because he's clearly in a Region for the first uh, set of events and clearly in Numenor for the second. So just guessing at the moment, I, I would have thought that they established Numenor in the first series and possibly save that for um, what happens next. But we'll see. Uh, so... That's the big thing that I've sort of seen as a storyteller is looking at what you would do if you bring those two um, big time gaps into alignment. What, what story you're en- you end up facing and what you would then do with that story. And I think the other important aspect, which I've been thinking of um, from the point of view of telling a story, is about the choice of characters to feature and that's becoming plainer as well as we get more details about who's doing, who's playing what. And I think what's particularly interesting is the decision to bring in the Harfoots as sort of proto hobbits. Now, the Harfoots are mentioned in the um, sort of Tolkien backstory, but really. I don't think that he was thought of them being present until the third age, but let's allow them that little bit of license. They've got to come from somewhere, uh, obviously, haven't they? And we do know that there are races of small people, halflings living on the banks of the river because that's where Gollum comes from. And his society hasn't just sprung out of nowhere when he finds uh, the one ring in the river. So I can see exactly why they're doing that. It sounds perfectly good idea. But from a storytelling point of view, I think this is possibly an attempt to conquer the most pressing problem that they have, which is, do we care about elves? Do we care about high races of men speaking in rather more formal language? That's always the problem about adaptations of high fantasy is where do we as human beings connect in Lord of the Rings, we connect at the le- level of the hobbits. So introducing hobbits or smaller people into the story give us a relatable level. What is interesting is how much these people will be the drivers of the story. Clearly, Frodo's journey and those of his companions is the uh, the substance of Lord of the Rings, But with the material from the second age, they're not there. They aren't the people uh, driving the forging of the rings or the downfall of Numenor. So what little we do know about this is that one of the characters who are in the smaller people uh, bracket is Nori Brandyfoot played by Markella Kavanagh. And, she is brandy foot, sounds like one of these um, portmanteau words brandy wine, proud feet, or all the rest of it. So you see where, where that came from. Um, and we know that she and a close friend, Poppy Proudfellow, played by Megan Richard, um, discover a man fallen a bit like a flaming meteor from the sky, who's played by an actor called Daniel Wayman. Now, I'm sure this will all be revealed very soon, but if I was a betting person, I would reckon that possibly that character could be Sauron. Possibly, because that would fit with the idea of like a fallen angel. But we'll find out. So it may be that they're introducing the hobbits as sort of behind-the-scenes movers and shakers, i.e. if you think of Sauron being a bit like the ring, the role of the ring is to bring evil into different people's lives in lord of the rings sauron does that um in the second age so it could be in that they are you know mistakenly um from their point of view introducing evil when they really didn't mean it that would be an interesting direction to take and of course there's a, another possibility there are so many possibilities that the fallen um Man, the naked man, that could also be thinking it through a reference to one of the wizards, maybe even Gandalf. Um, he isn't, sort of, as far as the texts are concerned, present during the second age, really, but he's alive, uh, because he's one of these um spiritual creatures as opposed to a natural born human lifespan type person. And uh, looking at the last the trailers, there was a, definitely a touch of Gandalf the Grey about the actor playing that part so um we know that the uh, Gandalf has a friendship with the uh the hobbits that started long before the time of Frodo and Bilbo so maybe we're going to see the beginning of that that would be an interesting uh an interesting development though of course what the problem is he can't really intervene um in the major plots unless it's very subtle and behind the scenes because it's not there in the appendices, but we'll see. But there is an attempt here to, I think, make us relate to these characters, which I think is absolutely necessary. What I'm worrying about is where their story goes because it seems as though one of the main drivers of this series is Galadriel. We know Galadriel's story. So let's have a look at Galadriel. We have met her in Lord of the Rings as the mature elven lady. She's already very old by the second age. So casting her as a young actress, again, we can see why, but she's pretty old already, thousands of years old. Um, And she originally comes from the Undying Lands as part of the exodus of the elves from that place. She I would say that the Exodus of the Elves is 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 a shameful episode in Elf history because it involves um, internecine battles between Elven families. She's sort of a little bit aside from that, but still, that whole episode is 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 very fraught. And um, people, you know, there is a sense of the greed of Fiano, who's the original. Elven and craftsman who makes the Silmarils. So the, the Exodus is actually driven by a sense of pride, again, over the things that have been created, a wish to get out from under the thumb of the way the Undying Lands are governed. So in Galadriel, you have... Um, an elf maiden who's already had a very long history. She, um, in the Second Age, I mean, she comes to meet the person she eventually marries, who's Celeborn. And if you look at Tolkien's writings, uh, there is a, a number of different versions of where they live and when they live. But again, this is things you'll find in the Silmarillion, but and also find in the Unfinished Tales So they are present at the same time as the forging of the rings. And, of course, Galadriel ends up with one of them. So she's clearly going to be a major person in this series. But how human is she? If she is this person of great power, if she is this person who has had all these thousands of years to grow and mature and gain her wisdom, she's less relatable to you and me, isn't she, than an a hobbit? That's that's one of the problems. It's why I think it's one of the reasons why people find the Silmarillion more difficult to read, is because it's about heroic figures done in a historical way rather than in a relatable way of the adventures of small people in a big world. So that's the problem they have. To tackle as writers. I can see strategies they're taking so using the Hobbits making Galadriel younger and of course what we've yet to see is quite what they do with the Numenorians. This will be fascinating and it's where it might end up in Game of Thrones territory because Muriel as the forced wife of R. um, clearly there's more potential there for um more adult material i think that the the series is going to try and stay in family watching territory but still the the uh the tone of that story of its tragic trajectory does seem outside the redemptive arc that you get in lord of the rings I think that's a real that's that's that is a big challenge. So maybe that is why they are introducing completely new characters. And among those new characters is possibly the one I really looking forward to seeing is a female dwarf called Dísa. So whereas in the Hobbit films of Peter Jackson we got a couple of uh dwarf women in the sort of background characters, it looks like they've actually got one as a foreground character. So I think another conclusion I've come to as a sort of storyteller is the effort has been made to foreground really interesting female characters because it's clear that when Tolkien was writing, um, he wasn't thinking in terms of having leading female characters in his uh, novels. It just wasn't part of the way he thought. And so this generation is taking on the challenge to work out complex character arcs for the women. So hopefully we'll get some people who will be up there with Erwin, Arwen and Galadriel so that we've got more female Tolkien characters to talk about in future. So that's my little uh, overview just prior to the series coming out. We will be dipping back in to review the early episodes and then an overview of the end of the first se- season. And I think really the thing that I want to stop with is what would you have done if you were given the the task of writing this? It's such an enormous task. They're not going to please everybody. And I've been thinking about it ever since I heard... This series was coming out. Just thinking, well, what would I do? Uh, I think I probably panic <laughs> because of the expectations that are weighing on me. But it, uh, this little exercise of working out what they're doing has actually been very revealing as to how creatives are thinking about this. And so, fingers crossed that what they've actually put together has picked up the, the sort of the idea of making it relatable, finding good story arcs. Um, Bringing together the events which are central to the Second Age to get away from the feeling that this is a kind of Game of Thrones light. um, That would be horrible. Let's hope they've actually kept the spirit of Tolkien, which I think centers on somebody with hobbit values, not necessarily a hobbit, but somebody who is earthed who is appreciates nature, who is who is a a character where we can sort of settle down and see the events of the world with them. That's what I'm hoping, because that seems to be really one of the huge reasons for the longevity of Tolkien's fantasy. Now, I always end these uh, podcasts with where in all the fantasy world is the best place to be something. This one's a bit of a challenge. Um, because I've been trying to guess what the main themes are. But clearly one theme I think I can put my money on would be where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be a maker of rings? I don't think that is in uh, the world of Lord of the Rings because what happens to you is not not very good. Uh, you get sort of sucked in by your creation or find you've put most of your power in it, so it becomes your Achilles' Hill. Very bad idea, Sauron, you should have thought this through. Anyway, um, so where would be a better place in all the fantasy worlds to be a maker of rings? And the other place where rings are made in the world of the Inklings, of course, is in the magician's nephew. Um, Uncle Andrew makes some rings. He starts off by sending guinea pigs off, and it takes you to the Wood Between the Worlds. So the, the ability to make those rings that take you to a place where you can travel to other worlds sounds like a really good place to be a ring maker. So that would be my pick if I was going to be without, because Uncle Andrew is selfish and evil um, and unleashes the Empress Jadis on, on uh, London through having sent the children to her world. Leaving all that aside <laughs> and just doing the bit where you get to travel. That's what I'd like to be. I'd like to make rings and go to the wood between the worlds and have the ability to jump into the pools and visit other worlds and take somebody with me as well because this isn't just for one person, this ring. Anyway, so that is my thought on making rings of power. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers podcast brought to you by the oxford center for fantasy visit oxfordcentreforfantasy.org for fantasy.org to join in the fun find out about our online courses in person stays in oxford plus visit our shop for great gifts tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide